What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Well, we're starting to get some specific quantifications, some some clear numbers about the impact of voter suppression laws, this time specifically in Wisconsin. Uh, There is a lot going on in the news. Uh, Trump says he's going to go to Puerto Rico, a country that uh, he used to run a hotel down there. Trump International Hotel in Puerto Rico. Uh, when he left, it was bankrupt and it cost the government $30 million, a little more than that, actually. Now, you know, to his credit, I guess, you know, the, the, the uh, I think it was PolitiFact fact-checked this, and they said when he bought into the hotel or, or cut a licensing agreement with, a, with the hotel in 2008, the hotel was already in financial trouble. Uh, He simply asserted that he was going to turn it around, he was going to fix it, and now he left and it was bankrupt. So, you know, there there are people openly wondering if Trump even knows that people in Puerto Rico have U.S. passports, that they're U.S. citizens. Does he even know this? I mean, it's it's very strange. Uh, But back to back to this. Uh, and Graham Cassidy, the Republicans are trying to decide if they're going to have a vote today or not. You know, do they want to get their members on record? Are they have, you know, how many members, how many Republicans in the Senate wanted known that they wanted to destroy, destroy the health care of their state versus how many don't want it known? That's what it's coming down to. It's very strange. But back to this uh, Wisconsin study. This is extraordinary. This was a study that was uh, paid for by the Dane County Clerk's Office, right? Well, you know, one of the, one of the major counties in, in Wisconsin. And uh, it was, the, the survey was administered by the University of Wisconsin Survey Center. So, you know, this is just like straight up, good old fashioned, clean science, right? It wasn't, this wasn't, you know, some right-wing think tank or for that matter, some left-wing think tank, if there are any. I guess there's a few. But uh, it wasn't that. It was just a straight-out study. How many people were deterred from voting? In other words, they, they probably could have voted. In fact, they might have had the right idea to vote, but they decided, you know, it's going to be too much hassle. Sort of like, you know, going through uh, TSA at the airport. You know, yeah, okay, I really don't want to go through that hassle. I'll take the train. Okay. Uh, you know, increasingly from from D.C. to New York, that's what people are saying, and and you know for that reason. So that was deterred, and then there were those people who were prevented from voting, who actually showed up to vote and were and were said and were told, "Sorry, the law requires we give you a provisional ballot, but uh, the law does not require we count it. So here's a ballot; you can fill it out, mark it up, but we're not going to count it." And in most cases, they didn't tell people that they're not going to. And this does not include, because they had no way of finding them or measuring them, this did not include the people who didn't register to vote because they were afraid that they didn't have the right ID. In other words, 100% of the people that I'm about to describe to you who got prevented from voting or were discouraged from voting were already registered. 
We have no idea how many people didn't register. And in, and in fact, in many of these uh, Republican-controlled states where they're aggressively trying to make it hard to vote, they're also making it hard to register, right? You know, the, the, the driver's license bureaus or the places where you can get your ID are, you know, running on a very temporary basis or, you know, they cut back the hours and the months before, you know, when, when it's still possible to register to vote. Uh, they closed some of them. I mean, this has been going on in the Carolinas and in the Deep South uh, literally for, for, you know, decades, uh, maybe centuries. And, and now it's being done in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and whatnot. Um, so here's what they found. <clears throat> they found that, now, keep in mind, Trump won Wisconsin by 22,000 votes, 22,748 votes. 22,000. Just looking at two counties, Milwaukee County and Dane County, just looking at these two counties, what they found was that as many as 23,000 people, 23,252 specifically, were deterred from voting. In other words, they, in many cases, actually didn't realize that they had the right ID to vote. But they just, you know, they, they said, yeah, I voted in the past. These were all people who are registered to vote and who voted in the 2012 election. All of them. And they said, you know, no, I, I, I just, you know, I'm, I, I don't think I can, I can get through all this stuff. I'm, you know, I, 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 23,000 people deterred. They said, no, I didn't vote um, because I just, you know, it, it looked like it was going to be a hassle. An additional 14,000 people were actually prevented from voting. They were registered to vote. They showed up to vote. They thought they had enough ID. Uh, it, they didn't. So who was it? So here we've got a total. This is, you know, 23,000 plus 14,000, if my math is right, is 37,000 people. Trump won by 22,000 people. And this is just in two counties, by the way. So who was it who was deterred from voting? See, the Republicans had... <laughs> They've known this since 1980. Paul Weyrich was talking about this in 1980, 1981, right? He was saying, you know, the, and quite frankly, our leverage in the elections goes up as the voting populace goes down. So it's not like, you know, somebody just, you know, woke up on the Republican Party and said, gee, we got to stop poor people, young people, old people, and black people from voting. It was that they've been doing this all along. And frankly, the Democrats before them, at least in the South, at least in a way, you know, directed against people of color. You know, the, the, the scripts kind of flipped in the 50s, but frankly, both Democrats and Republicans were just, just fine with separate but equal and all that kind of thing. But the Democratic Party took a step forward in the, in the mid-60s, and, and everything changed. So anyhow, who was, who was prevented from voting? Well, it turns out... that of the deterred, the burdens of voter ID, I'm just, I'm quoting from the study itself. This is, uh, this was embargoed until 7 p.m. last night. And it's from Kenneth Mayer, the professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He said, the burdens of voter ID fell disproportionately on low-income and minority populations among low-income registrants, and that's people making with a household income of under $25,000 a year. 21% were deterred compared to 7% for those making over $25,000. Among high-income residents, if you make over $100,000, only 2.7%, a little over 2% of people said, you know, I'm not sure if I've got the right ID. I know it's going to be a big hassle. Screw it, I'm not going to vote. That was only 2.7% among wealthy people making over 100 grand a year, 21% among people making under 25,000 a year. On, with regard to the racial break, breakdown, 8.3% of white registrants were deterred from voting. 27.5% of African Americans were deterred from voting. This, by the way, was based on the statewide database of registered voters, WISVOTE, uh, as I said, you know, the administrator was administered by the University of Wisconsin Survey Center, funded by the Dane County Clerk's Office. 
The survey found considerable confusion about the law, they add. Most of the people who said they did not vote because they lacked ID actually possessed a qualifying form of ID. This confusion may be the result of a lack of effective efforts educating eligible voters of the requirements of the law. Well, it's not just a lack of efforts. It's an intention. I mean, they're intentionally trying to confuse people around, around this. In fact, Mayer, the guy who ran the study, he said the 11.2% figure is actually a lower boundary since it does not include people who didn't even register to vote because they lack an ID. So we know that probably something like 37,000 people just in these two counties in Wisconsin were either prevented or deterred from voting. The vast majority of them being low-income people. We don't know statewide because they didn't have the budget to survey everybody in the state. They just did two counties, but you can kind of extrapolate from that. The Republicans have got this thing going. You know, the Republicans have got this thing. It's this, this is, this is how they're going to win elections. They're going to keep you from voting, especially if you're old enough that you might not drive anymore. And so you haven't kept your driver's license current. Or if you're young enough that you haven't started driving or you're going to college and you haven't had the need for a driver's license. Or if you're disabled and you can't drive. Or if you just happen to live in, in the inner city and you don't need to drive, you know. Oh. So the, I mentioned the, there's a, a, a two-legged stool. I'm sure there's a third leg. We'll, we'll have to figure out what that is. But there, there's there's two major pieces to the Republican strategy for acquiring and and holding political power. And this fundamentally goes back to what Henry Wallace was asked in 1944 when the New York Times in June of 1944 asked the vice president of the United States at that time, the sitting vice president of the United States. Uh, they asked him, are there fascists in America? I mean, keep in mind, we were fighting a war with fascists in, in Germany and, and in Japan. Are there fascists in America? If so, who they are, who are they, and are they dangerous? And Henry Wallace uh, basically came out. You can, you can look this up. I mean, it's still in the New York Times. Um, I've written several pieces about it, quoting it at length. So if you just plug my name and Henry Wallace's name into a search engine, you'll get it uh, fairly quickly, I'm sure. Uh, maybe the word fascist, too. Uh, but in any case, what Henry Wallace said was, yeah, there are fascists in, in the United States. And the ones that you have to worry about are not the guys who are who are going to the Bund meetings, you know, with a swastika on their sleeve and waving around a, a, a silly flag. Those aren't the ones you have to worry about. The ones you have to worry about, Henry Wallace said, are those who who uh, speak with you know great and eloquent patriotism but in fact, I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but in fact, they are the spokespeople for vested interest and monopoly. And their ultimate goal is to seize political power along with the economic power which they already have. In fact, to use that economic power to seize political power so that they may keep the, eternal, the, the average man in eternal subjection. That's my recollection of the last paragraph of Henry Wallace's article in the New York Times. That's pretty close. And that's what ha has happened now. You know, FDR said they, they, you know, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. He was speaking specifically of, you know, the, of the vested interests of his day. America has a cokehead problem. You know, we've got a bunch of politicians who are beholden to a series of billionaires. It's not just, you know, David and Charles Koch. It's, uh, you know, you've got uh, Robert Mercer, you've got Shelley Adelson, you've got a bunch of, of these billionaires whose, whose names you wouldn't recognize. But they're playing huge, outsized roles in determining who's representing you and what the legislation is. Uh, yesterday, there were, there were several articles. There was one over at Daily Kos. There's one in the Washington Post. Um, there was another one, I believe, on the Hill. Um, and in fact, I think there might have even been one in Politico that were basically asking the question, OK, you know, this is like this this Republican repeal Obamacare thing. You know, it's like Lucy and the football. Right. I mean, how many times is Mitch McConnell going to get all the Republicans up here and say, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's take away everybody's health care. Yeah, yeah. We promised that in the in the election. And then, you know. Lucy pulls the ball, right? In this case, uh, Lucy being the, the amalgam of uh, Rand Paul and, and John McCain and Susan Collins, and perhaps a few others. And asking the question, why are they doing this? 
And the consensus seems to be that, and, and in fact, one of the articles even, you know, flat out asserted that in the last couple of weeks, there was a meeting between a bunch of billionaire donors to the Republican Party and a bunch of Republican senior elected officials. And what the donors said to the Republican elected officials was, you know, we've been funding you guys for a long, long time. We've given you a free ride. We've been taking care of you. We got you elected. We keep you elected. We're not going to do this anymore if you don't give us our damn tax cut. Get rid of that health care for those so-called average working people. To hell with them. We want our tax cut. And, you know, we want to get rid of that 3.8%, you know, added tax on capital gains. We get rid of that. So, so we're not paying for people's health care. And then we want so-called tax reform. We want a big tax cut for our businesses so that we can buy back more of our stock and we can get even richer. And the Republicans said, oh, my God, you know, if we if we upset these people, they're not going to give us any more money. And that's why they're doing the vote, even though they know it's going to fail. They're doing the vote to say to the to the to the billionaires who own them. See, we tried. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't help it. You know, Susan Collins, she's she's got a mind of her own. John McCain, he's you know, he's got cancer. He's not going to run for reelection in all probability. We can't control him. Rand Paul is just a nut job. I mean, you know, you got to help us elect a few more Republicans, please. And these billionaires are gone. I don't think so. It's getting real weird out there. We'll be back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. So what am I missing here? Uh, Suppress people of color, poor, old, young, all that kind of thing. Number one. Number two, take all that money from the billionaires. There's got to be a third leg to that stool. Did you know that the NTSA says that 94% of car crashes are tied to human error and 60% of accidents are due to lane departure and lack of advanced warnings? That's because only 40% of people apply their brakes in car crashes and have enough advanced warning. Now there's an affordable anti-collision system that can be added to vehicle years 2000 or newer, the RD-140 by Safe Drive Systems. The RD-140 is a front collision radar and lane departure system that works at night and in all weather conditions. It prevents up to 90% of potential injury-causing or fatal car accidents. It's like having an extra set of eyes in hard-to-navigate conditions and when drivers are distracted. It alerts the driver with an audio and visual signal when they're too close to the vehicle in front or when deviating from their lane. It gives up to five extra seconds of reaction time and is great for seniors and teens. Go to safedrivingsystems.com to find out how to add the RD140 to your car. Use code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive free installation by a professional technician at your home or office. It's currently available in a limited number of states, so go to safedrivesystems.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, for free installation. Go to safedrivesystems.com today. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Sue Nethercutt in the chat room, uh, she suggests to me for the third leg of the stool, and I don't know why I didn't catch this. In fact, um, I... I, I I've been talking about it. You know, Paul Krugman's piece in the New York Times, uh, I, I think it went up electronically yesterday. I'm guessing it's in the print paper today, uh, in, in which basically he says that the Republican Party exists based on lies. You know, they, they lied to us about uh, the war in Iraq. They lied to us about their health care plan, uh, about what was in Obamacare to begin with and what they would do to replace it. They lied to us about, you know, what they wanted to do about Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. They lied to us about global climate change. Uh, the Republican Party, uh, they lie to us about uh, voter fraud. Uh, they, they, you know, it, it, the party, in order to function, in order to serve the right-wing billionaires and the corporations that they represent, on the one hand, and and in order to serve the the, the, the fractious uh, uh, herd of cats that they've got to pull together in order to get elected, right? You, you got to have a few gun nuts and you got to have some anti-abortion people and you got to have some right-wing fundamentalist Christians and you've got to have some, uh, you've got to have some people who are just, you know, parent, hate government, you know, in general who are, you know, the parent, you got to have people who think that their gun is going to be taken away. Uh, you got to have people who hate people of color. You got to have people who hate people who are gay. 
Uh, you know, this is the Republican coalition. So they've got, they've got to do all that. And that, a lot of that is involved in lies too, because by and large, you know, they don't care about the situation with regard to people of color in this country. They don't care about the situation with regard to people who are, you know, uh, who are not straight white men in this country. I mean, they, 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 they care ultimately only about the economics. And so, yeah, sure. If you want to have legalized pot, that's fine. You know, libertarians like that because it's, it, it doesn't hurt any billionaires. And in fact, they might even get rich. So anyhow, great third stool or third leg for the stool, Sue. Thank you for that. Um, just in case you missed it, by the way, you know, the Republicans constantly say uh, Obamacare was passed by reconciliation. It wasn't. It actually got a supermajority in the Senate. Um, they say Obamacare was rammed down our throats with no hearings. Uh, that's a lie. There were over 70 public hearings about Obamacare. Uh, they say Republicans had no input. That's a lie. There were numerous Republican uh, amendments that were accepted, including one that said that all members of Congress have to be on Obamacare. Um, you know, another Republican lie. Um, they say that it was written in secret in, you know, behind closed doors. It wasn't. It was written right out in public, out in the open through the committee process. Obamacare was. But this Republican deal is all the things that they lied about the Democratic deal. So they're getting caught in their lies. But anyhow, they, they finally held one hearing on this, the Republicans, yesterday. And you know how many members of the public they allowed to sit and listen to that one hearing that they held? Three of these guys were dressed like lobbyists, you know, classic lobbyist uniform, according to more than one observer. And the remaining two look like just kind of average people. That's right. The remaining two, they let five people watch the hearing. And they had to keep a lot of reporters out. Oh, you know, the room is just too small. There were all kinds of great big rooms in the, in the, in the Capitol building that were available. But no, no, we got to. In, in fact, uh, somebody made the joke, Dana Milbank, he said, maybe the Senate janitor's closet was already booked. You know, in other words, we've got to find the smallest room we possibly can. And uh, meanwhile, Jeff Sessions proves he's a snowflake. I mean, there's just so much going on. I'll get to more of that as we continue through the program. Uh, but uh, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, thanks so much for taking my call. Congratulations on your daughter wedding. Um, before you know it, you're going to be um, asked to babysit your grandkids. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> so what's up? Yeah, yeah, what I wanted to call about is that, you know, back in the days, just going through my recollection, wouldn't the Republican um, uh, held by a judge uh, regarding voter oppression, they were um, ordered to stop uh, oppressing voters or intimidating voters back it, in the 80s? Yeah, it was caging specifically was, yeah. what the, was what the Republican Party, there was a, a, a multi-decade court order in effect. I believe it's still in effect and because what Republicans used to do is they used to mail out a card to people and uh, if that card uh, was not returned, then they challenged your right to vote. And they, in fact, they, they knocked you out the voting rolls, right? It's called caging. Yeah, and they're in violation of that ruling now. And I think in my opinion, Democratic Party, it's a Democratic Party need to, um, uh, you know, uh, basically go to court and, and make sure they get fined. And the last thing I wanted to say, you know, with all this voter oppression going on throughout the country, I, I really think that it's going to be it's going to take non minorities to get this elected president voted out. Mm. Because, I mean, I think the Republicans are going to go. They're going to probably oppress a lot of the African and minority voters a lot. And yeah. it's going to take people like you, people like uh, uh, Stephanie Miller and other, you know, good American, what I call great American to, to vote these. Uh, uh, yeah, the bottom line is that, that white people made Donald Trump president. He took uh, 53 percent of the white female vote and I think 58 percent of the white male vote. And uh, white people are going to have to atone to that for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know how to say it beyond that, but. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Omar, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Marie in Oak Creek, Colorado. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? Stockholm syndrome. White people have Stockholm syndrome and we don't know it. <laughs> How so? I, I kind of want to go ahead. I'm sorry. How so? Oh, oh, uh, that uh, especially with women, 
that we have been um, we have been so duped and so lied to that we've ingested those lies, and that we have allowed that to become part of our worldview, part of our being. And we've got to break the grip of Stockholm Syndrome. So Stockholm Syndrome is on. essentially identifying with your oppressor and adopting yes. adopting their value yes. system. Um, yes. So you're saying yes. that, that um, middle class, by and large, white people in the United States have identified with the corporate CEOs and the billionaire class and uh, to their own disadvantage, frankly. And, and have helped put these people in power. Is that what you're suggesting? If so, Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's why the divide and conquer stuff, as long as we keep people completely ignorant of what's going on then, or at least semi-ignorant, yeah. uh, then we can perpetuate the system. What I really wanted to go to, and I hope you don't mind me going back here for a segment, is Trump's remarks Friday night about the NFL. Mm-hmm. I've been very disturbed about the, the violence in football and the growing violence for a long time. been very disturbed about the growing militarism and the link of football and violence with militarism. I've been very concerned about the racism, but there was such misogyny embedded in what Trump said, and it is a hidden misogyny that's pervasive through our culture. Think of the words that men use when they want to insult or demean one another. They almost always refer to women, and specifically their mothers. Right, or gay men. One or the other. Or, or gay men. That's, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Though that language is so pervasive. I'm, I'm really kind of glad that MSNBC and CNN last night were allowing his full statement instead of bleeping him. I even noticed Stephen Colbert even went ahead and used the word. Yeah. Normally that's bleeped, or normally there's a, there's a moment of, of, of propriety. And we yeah. Well, that word is sort of on the, on the edge, because it also has a dual meaning. It also means literally yeah. and legally a female dog or a mother dog. Um, Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. And, and, and hear how demeaning that is also. Right. I mean, the, the fact that that word is constantly used. But the, the misogyny is a big piece of it. And I keep wondering, it, I was thinking that might be the third leg of the Republican, of the Republican plan, um, that we, we completely disenfranchise through de- dehumanization and demeaning language, imagery, continually being repeated, we demean over half the population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was certainly president president in the election, in the 2016 election. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with Hillary Clinton that if, if she was a man, there would have been no, I mean, she would have easily won the election. Um, Absolutely. And not to, not to, and we need to constantly point out she got three million more votes than Donald Trump did. Uh, even at that. So excellent points, Marie. Excellent points all. Thank you for calling and making them. Anthony in Sugar Grove, Illinois. Hey, Anthony, what's on your mind today? Uh, The last said about uh, divide and conquer. Uh And uh, Vice News did a segment on their Friday night episode uh, about gerrymandering in North Carolina and our country. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. I mean, I've, I've, I've listened to it and I've heard, I kind of understood what it meant, but watching what they did in North Carolina where they divided up Asheville completely in half and Greensboro, uh, they had a university in Greensboro. I don't know uh, what university it was, but literally cut the university in half for the congressional line. And it, it's just amazing what they've done and with red map and, packing and stacking minorities and i would encourage you and your listeners just to check it out it was it, it it was really really awesome okay sounds it sounds interesting it sounds sounds good anthony thanks for the heads up on that i appreciate the call andrew in uh petersham peters how do you say it in massachusetts the town petersham petersham okay great hey matthew what's or andrew what's up hey man thanks for taking my call yeah you're talking about uh Republicans and uh, their donor class and whatnot. And what I don't think it's discussed enough is another way in which the rich and powerful uh, use to influence not just policy, but create ideas, and that's through various foundations. It's nothing new. Uh, you look at people like John Olin, uh, you know, the Cokes, obviously, um, 
Scapey, all of them. Scapey has the Heritage Foundation. He's their biggest contributor. I mean, Joe Kors was part of it, but he really got the ball rolling. You have the Cokes and the Cato Institute and, you know, John Olin. And the thing about John Olin is his front was attacking academia, you know, and you know, the media to some degree, but mainly academia and basically putting foot soldiers into colleges to infiltrate them with ideas. And they hid behind, they weren't up front with their their main causes because they knew they would be trumped upon. You know, they were very clandestine with it. And so was Scapey and the Heritage Foundation and whatnot. You know, and it, those things don't get discussed enough. I mean, you think of philanthropy as something good, you know, and they hide behind this guys. And it's, I hardly ever hear it discussed. Yeah, it's, it, it, it functionally hasn't been discussed since the 1980s, Andrew. Uh, yeah, yeah it, goes, it goes way back to even, you have these influential people, these schools of thought that, you know, go back to, um, I forget his first name, but his last name was Lafarge, and these are pre-John Birch Society thinkers yeah. that really influence these elites that we're talking about, these oligarchs, yeah. no other term for them. I'm with you. Andrew, I gotta, I gotta run. Thanks for the call. Well said. We'll do it back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls after this. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Corky in Hilton, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind today? Corky? Corky, usually you're right there. I'm going to put you on hold in case your phone is having a problem here, and we'll try D in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, D, what's on your mind today? Hi, I'm just so proud of you. What you just said. Um, I, I hope you can hear me clearly. Yeah. I'm just so proud of you because I think it was a so. Uh, this is my opinion. Uh, cyber war, mm-hmm. and we lost. So we have to think about what our new leaders, whether it's Russia or whomever. Uh, want from us. They're using race uh, to manipulate um, the masses, you know, just our ignorance, our fear. Um, but what I, what I was, I'm just proud of you that you come to that conclusion, and I'm just taking it to where I... Well, I'm saying explicitly, I want to know what the hell's going on here. You know, if, if, if there are foreign countries uh, buying ads on Facebook designed to, to heighten racial division in the United States... Um, that should be illegal. And that's something that we should, you know, we need to find out about. I, 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 my suspicion, frankly, D, and because none of us know, we don't have the details, but my suspicion, you know, Paul Manafort has deep ties into that part of the world. And some of the, some of the less well-regulated, shall we say, and uh, more competent and yet low cost hackers in the world are coming out of that part of the world. And so we don't know if this came out of the Russian government or, or if this came out of Paul Manafort and the, and the GOP, you know, cycled through there. Uh, whatever it is, I want to know what's going on. And, and I don't think that any country, whether it's Russia, whether it's Israel, whether it's, uh, yeah, I mean, fill in the blank, right? And there's a hundred other countries you could put in there um, should be directly, I've, for that matter, Saudi Arabia is, uh, uh, is running anti-Oman ads in, uh, or Cutter ads, excuse me, um, here on television in Washington, D.C. And it's like, what? Really? Um, I think that there should be, this, this should be banned. Anyway, back to you, Dee. I remember uh, during the W administration, they, uh, they teach the test, they got rid of critical thinking. Yep. So we don't, th- these are the questions that we as a massive, I mean, because now it's coming to fruition, the results of that, of that, that time mm. um, for this generation. In reference to Simple things like donation. Trump said that he donated to the um, uh, victims of te- the Harvey uh, uh, hurricane victims in Texas, but no one has really looked into it. Like where it's from your personal money. Let's see it. You said you did it. Let's see it. Same as the veterans when he when he did that fundraiser for the veterans until a reporter brought it to the attention. He says he's a billionaire, but no one wants to ask proof. Again, that's, that's lack of critical thinking. In reference to health care, it's basically Republican health care is saying you're too poor to live. It's not about the beautiful mind that you possess in, in the circumstances you may find yourself. That could be the next invention or cure or, 
whatever the, the circumstances, the bottom line is you don't have the funds, you don't, you don't have the right to live. So um, I, I'm surprised to see America saying, no, we want to wait in 24-hour lines at a stadium, hoping to see a doctor for three minutes just to tell us, oh, well, if you could have taken care of this six months ago, you know, take the door to the left. Where is that? Oh, it's death because um, we can't help you. It, it, it just it just goes on. I mean, as me as an employer, I, when I hear right to work, I'm like, yeah, right to work. That means right to earn less. But as an employee, you probably think it's my right to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so we don't do that kind of critical thinking. Uh, you know, it's just it's we're we're at a point that we're so distracted by all of this hate, ignorance, and greed and jealousy. That we're for, we're not seeing the bigger picture, that third leg of the stool, as you put it. Yeah. And uh, we've been, um, we have a new President Obama was the last elected uh, uh, president, and now we have. I don't know what America holds in the future, but we need. I don't know what America holds. Yeah. That's all I have. Well, we we have a president who was selected by the Electoral College, not not by us. Um, three million more of us wanted Hillary Clinton as president. But the Electoral College, which was created to give the slave states more political power in Washington, D.C., and to protect their so-called right to, to maintain that institution, um, that, that, that was the beginning and end of the Electoral College. Um, this, you know, it, it, were it not for the Electoral College, uh, Al Gore would have been vice president. He got a half million more votes than George W. Bush did. And and Hillary Clinton would you know she got three million more votes than than Donald Trump did. This this is among other things a, a terrible anachronism and you know it's 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 useless now, and and it needs to be replaced with a with a national popular vote. I'm with you on that. And and yes, we have not seen Trump has very publicly all the way back to the 80s touted donations that he has given to various groups. Um, very rarely do the groups come forward and say, yeah, he actually gave us the money. So we'll see. We'll see if he gives his million bucks or not. Dee, thank you for the call. Very well said. We'll be back. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is uh, Dr. V. Ram, Ram, Ram Ramanathan. Uh, he is a distinguished professor at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego, a UNESCO professor of climate and policy at uh, Terry University, New Delhi, India. The website scripps.ucsd.edu, and you can tweet him at scripps underscore ocean. Dr. Dr. Ramanathan, welcome to the program. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. You have been uh, quoted uh, extensively uh, around the world as suggesting that if we continue on our current path with regard to carbon emissions, that the human race itself might not be on this planet uh, 73 years from now, if I'm doing my math right, in 2100, um, or is it 83 years from now? Uh, Do you want to speak to that? Can you please? Yes. um, I've been working in this uh, topic of climate change science uh, for the last uh, 43 plus years. And uh, and the evidence was accumulating. Uh, at least 20 years ago, uh, most many climate scientists, including me, knew this is going to get to be a serious problem. And there was just still no action on climate change mitigating it. So about five years ago, I went back to the data I had collected from satellites. Uh, in the early 1980s, I teamed up with NASA and launched a climate satellite. Then I collected a lot of observations with aircraft, ships, drones, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So with my students, I went back and looked at the late data we have collected 34, for the last 35 years. And I was sort of shocked to see uh, many of the predictions that were made decades ago were all coming true. With one exception, the changes we were seeing in terms of how much Arctic sea ice was melting and as a result of that, how much additional sunlight it was soaking into the ocean and how the clouds were retreating. It was clear that we are looking at a much 
uh, you know, a disastrous set of changes uh, than we had anticipated. So we took a factor of all this data into account and, and looked at what are the worst possibilities. For scientists like me, when we say worst possibility, we are looking at a 5% probability of what could happen. Most of the projections were focusing on the middle range, you know, what was 50% probability. So what we were finding was that uh, uh, there is a 5% chance climate change could become catastrophic, not 50 years from now, not 100 years from now, but 30 to 35 years from now. And so you can ask, how do we define catastrophic? Uh, basically, the changes would be so fast and so large, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to adapt to. And, and just to give you some idea of what motivated me to call this potentially catastrophic problem, that's about 35 years from now, is the fact that there were studies which are shown if we don't do anything about climate change by 2050, that's about 33 years, we would expose about three and a half billion people to what's called deadly heat. Okay, that's if you go out without protection, stay outside, that could cause heat stroke. And there was another study talking about two and a half billion would be exposed to viruses, you know, veteran-borne diseases such as chicken gunia, dengue fever, and Zika, and etc. And then was talking about third of the planet becoming dry. So then if we go on, we say, okay, we, we, we're going to ignore all these. And then go to what's going to happen beyond 2050. And where, you know, in the 2070 to 2000, uh, 2100, that's about 50 to 75 years from now. We're talking about 7 billion people exposed to deadly heat and about two-thirds of the planet experiencing drought. And then you add in the storms. And, and the thing which uh, really, really compelled me to call this an existential threat was the fact that uh, paleontologists and ecologists were suggesting climate change alone could expose 20% of the species to extinction. So we are talking about uh, devastating impacts on human beings, on the ecosystem, on all the species. So we carefully, we carefully chose the word expose to existential threat. That is different from, you know, causing uh, existential threat itself. It depends on how the society is going to adapt and respond to this. I'm not a social scientist. I personally don't see how we're going to be able to respond or adapt to such unprecedented uh, damages to human beings, to ecosystems. I just want to clarify one point and, 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 and let you ask uh, questions. Mm -hmm. That when I say worst possible uh, uh, consequence, I'm talking about 5% probability. So you, many of us tend to think, oh, 5%, that's too small. We don't have to worry about this. See, that's 5% is 1 into 20 odds of a plane falling down. We would never get on that plane with that kind of odds. And, 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 and my grave concern is that we are willing to send our children and grandchildren on that plane. Yeah, I, I caught that metaphor in the, <clears throat> in the stories on this, and I thought it was a really, really good one. Um, why is it that your um, rather dire predictions of, of this existential threat that we're facing, um, why is it that they are not uh, congruent with the predictions of the IPCC or the, uh, or the International uh, you know, Panel on, on, on Climate? Uh, or are they? And, and I'm missing something. Well, you know... Uh this 5% probability I'm talking about, they are there in, in some of the uh, results and data IPCC has shown about four years ago. 
but the focus of the summary documents and policy papers are all on this 50% probability, okay? And I, I, I don't know why they're not focusing on the 5% probability. So I, I don't want to speculate there. Yeah. But basically, they're focusing on the mean or the median rather than the, rather than the, uh, yeah. rather than the edges, basically, the, 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 ex, exactly. the, the, the very best and the very worst outcomes. And, exactly. and, and when we're talking about the survival of the planet, how can, how can one not, and not uh, speaking specifically of the IPCC, but just in general, you know, the, the media, the scientific community, how can one not have a serious conversation about the worst possible outcome? Good question. That's why we did, yeah. we, we went this route. We, I thought uh, some of us need to point out hey, there is also this huge elephant lurking there, and we need to think and, and worry about that right. and, and prepare society. If we, were to, if we were to take this warning seriously, and by we, I'm, I'm talking about the governments of the world, and immediately throw everything we had at moving to a decarbonized economy, um, is that going to be enough to prevent the, the, the really dire uh, outcomes that you're seeing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, when you say prevent, that's a very strong word for scientists like me. What we can do is to minimize the probability of happening. Right. Okay, we can never say our uncertainty is so large. We can never say that this is going to happen. All we can talk about is improbability. So, yes, Fortunately, there is time, uh, at least another 10 to 15 years, if you can take drastic actions, and I can give you some ideas. Uh, fortunately, and interestingly, the solution is exceedingly simple. All we have to do is to convert all of our end uses, our heating of our home, our cooking, your, the way you move about transport, convert everything to electricity and generate that electricity using wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, bioenergy, and nuclear if you have to. So there are multiples of options here. So the solutions are simple. Of course, it's going to cost. And that is where our study gives you what do you compare that with when we are talking about exposing most of the population to existential threat, then the cost of doing these are not that huge. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when you're when you're looking at the, the fate of the of the human race. I mean, literally, and, and of course, all other life on Earth. Uh, mm. Dr. V. Ram Ramath, Ramanathan. Uh, my apologies if I'm mangling your name, sir. Um, no problem. Thank you so much for being with us. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Um, people, his, his work is available all over. The chance of catastrophic climate change completely wiping out humanity by 2010. 2100 is now 1 in 20 is one of the main headlines. We'll be back. Thank you. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent at my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish, and thanks to all the ways you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to have to keep taking breaks or to stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. If you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X chair want you to feel the X chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com right now, that's the letter X chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, xchairtom.com. Not only will they knock $100 off the price, they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code TOM. Just go to xchairtom.com right now. I love my X-Chair and you will too, so check out xchairtom.com right now. Welcome back. Very pleased to have with us Professor Daniel Rothman, Professor of Geophysics in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at, Michigan, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Uh, the website's science.mit.edu. Uh, you can tweet at science MIT. Professor, welcome to the program. Um, thanks for having me. 
Thanks, thanks so much for being with us. We, we were just talking with uh, Dr. Ramanathan of uh, Scripps, and he was talking about uh, the, the possibility of, uh, you know, human extinction or, or certainly destruction of, of civilization. Uh, you've done some math on this that you've been quoted rather extensively. Tell us what, what your understanding is of the situation right now with regard to climate change and the direction that we're moving. Um, so I suppose you're referring to the paper I published in Science Advances last week. Yes. And um, in that paper, I didn't address global warming head-on so much as the consequences of putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And uh, it's more specifically, eventually that CO2 goes into the oceans. <clears throat> and I address the consequences of the uh, of the CO2 into into the oceans, and and I did it in a um, a, a way that I, I think it'd be fair to say is indirect. Basically, I, I studied the uh, the record of ancient events in the carbon cycle, that is, uh, past disruptions of the carbon cycle, and the carbon cycle being a loop between photosynthesis, which takes CO2 out of the um, atmosphere and oceans, and respiration, which is what we do, which brings it back when we consume the organic matter made by CO2. And in studying the past events, I basically considered two types of events. Um, one, those that are associated with mass extinctions, and uh, the other, those which were not. And so the, the issue is, is that every time there's been a mass extinction in the last 540 million years, there's been a clear disruption, a very serious disruption of the carbon cycle. On the other hand, um, there are also many serious disruptions of the carbon cycle in which there's been no mass extinction. So I tried to address um, the difference between these two and to see if you know one can conclude. You're talking about things like the PETM? Oh, so you're 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 au courant, as I say, right? <laughs> you seem to know. Well, that, that I mean, that okay. that some would argue that that was an extinction event. It just wasn't a mass extinction event. It was a minor extinction event. So the PETM, for your listeners, the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, <laughs> an event right. about 55 million years ago, um, is associated with the extinction of some benthic foraminifera, but not widespread mass extinction. And that, that's one of the conundrums because the PETM is one of the most um, you know, well-studied events in, in the geologic record. There's a clear disruption, clear signs of warming, clear signs of ocean acidification, but not much of a, a biotic impact. And so the question is, what sets these apart? And, so I, and what does? Um, so um, what I found is that um, I basically began with a hypothesis. And the hypothesis... Um, Part of it um, will sound familiar, and that's the idea that the rate at which CO2 levels increase matters, right? And so one, one thinks that it's natural to imagine that the faster you pump CO2 into the atmosphere and or the oceans, the, the, the more dangerous it is for, the, you know, for, for ecosystems. And so that's basically saying rates matter. Now, on the other hand, I started thinking, well, what happens if it happens really fast? Like, what happens if it happens now during the radio show, right? And then um, you, know, you raise CO2 levels, say, only one part per million, one four hundredth of their present level. Well, you and I will leave our rooms, eventually go outside, and if it went up one ppm, we wouldn't notice anything. However, the rate at which it happened would have been infinite. Right. And so, therefore, it had to be a little bit more um, richer than just rates, because the idea of there being a critical rate applies to timescales that are sufficiently long. And when the timescales, on the other hand, are sufficiently short, like instantaneous, then it becomes a matter of how much. So it's like how much or how fast. Right. Right. And um, I found a way of connecting the two. And the, the connect how much to how fast um, via the time scale that separates fast from slow. And this allowed me to predict how much, also by studying the data, but allowed me to predict from the study of the ancient events, which are slower, it allowed me to predict how much of a change today would bring us into this zone where in the past it would be associated with mass extinction. Okay. And so 
the the answer to how much is a number. It's about 310 gigatons of carbon, um, which, following basically every projection um, that's been made, is a number that will reach sometime this century. And that's 300 gigatons going into the ocean. We 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 put it into the atmosphere, and then some of it gets absorbed. Haven't we put uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution something on the order of 500 gigatons? Uh, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's not a fact. Uh, I, I actually, I, I don't remember the number. So, You're right. It's more than the 300. However, right. a lot stays in the ocean. I mean, a lot stays in the atmosphere. Right. A lot gets taken up by land. Mm. And I'm specifically referring to how much is absorbed in the ocean. I see. And, and the reason I'm doing that is um, for, for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the, the study really only addresses things that happen, I would say, at timescales of 100 to 1,000 years at the fastest, because it implicitly assumes an equilibration between the atmosphere and oceans. And secondly, all of the the data for mass extinction that exists in the geologic record, or most of it, let's just say the, the highest quality data, exists from marine life. And so, mm -hmm. and, and it seems usually mass extinctions started in the oceans, do they not? Oh, I think in certain cases it's unclear, and you can take the case of you know the famous KT or Cretaceous tertiary extinction yeah. that killed the dinosaurs. Um, if following um, the standard view now that it was a bolide and bolide impact, then you would think something started in the atmosphere. Right, but the Permian, uh, the, the 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 most severe part, the beginning of the most severe part of it began in the ocean, as I recall. But. Um, well, or maybe I, we're I not sure. I don't think we know enough to say that for yeah. any extinction with any authority. The, the, the real issue is that the best data comes from the oceans because it's reasonably homogeneous. Uh, and, and also sedimentary rock and all that, you know, you, you, you simply have a whole lot more material to look at. Uh, right. That. And there's one other element here. Um, my study is is based on what we call the carbon isotopic records, the isotopic composition of carbon buried in the sedimentary rock you just referred to. Right. And that isotopic composition is really only reliable as an indicator of the atmosphere and oceans when it comes from uh, marine sediments. Hmm. Okay. So, so, but, so to get, we just have a couple minutes left here. Uh, we're talking with Professor Daniel Rothman of MIT. What, what specifically do people need to know about what you learned and what can we do with that information? So I'd say there are many things that have been learned, but insofar as the case of the sixth extinction that you were alluding to earlier, the point is, is that uh, the results of my study suggest that the emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere um, sometime in the com in, during the current century would be sufficient to so to speak, launch a major extinction event. And by launch, what I mean is put the Earth system, that is the atmosphere, the oceans, and the life that it supports, on a trajectory which, if left unchecked over a period of about 10,000 years, um, would engage in an unstable trajectory so that it would lead to an extinction event, which would basically start, you know, sometime in the near future and continue and reach its worst level, you know, far into the future. So if you wish, the take-home message is that there are other things that are unhealthy um, to the planet about putting CO2 in the atmosphere besides global warming. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we're basically talking about ocean acidification. Right, killing off the ocean. And, 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 the, and con the contribution of my study is to basically say how much is too much. Right, and with that, and when you say a mass extinction, are you talking an extinction that would include top predators like you and me, humans? Um, I, I hesitate to go that far. I, the this, this study basically addresses the data for you know marine invertebrates, that is organisms with shells. The shells have a lot, you know, these organisms have a hard time making their shells when the oceans become acidic. Right. Um, one could imagine that things become bad all around, but that the study doesn't really um, identify mechanisms. It's basically putting the data together, trying to make this connection between the past and the future. And, and, and you're, you're more or less suggesting that we have a carbon budget of around 300, giga, 300 uh, gigatons of carbon that we can emit before 
It, no, 300 gigatons that we can allow to go into the oceans. But into the oceans, okay. about twice as much gets emitted okay. compared to how much is and, and, and in the near term. Any sense of how many years that gives us until we have to really decarbonize our, our economy? Well, I mean, the, the, it depends on you know, how things develop, but the, the paper basically says as a round number, you know, that this this uh, threshold would be crossed sometime this century, the latter half of this century. Huh. I mean, nothing, you know, terrible happens the next day. I mean, it's just sure. that this is this this is when we end up on this trajectory. And so the obvious way to not get there or the obvious way to uh, retract it back once you get there is to not put as much CO2 into it. Right, because the only way to know that you're actually in an extinction event is in retrospect, it seems, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. uh, of, of course. Uh, or at least in the early stages of one. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Professor Daniel Rothman, I, uh, thank you so much for dropping by, for, for doing this work and, and, and getting it out there. Uh, I, I really appreciate you being with us. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Professor Bye. Daniel Rothman of MIT. We'll be back. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.